welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. This episode we have a very special uh, recording that I made earlier in the week at the Museum of Transport and Technology at, uh, in Auckland, where we had a very special guest visiting from England, a squadron leader Tony Iverson. Now, Tony Iverson is a very interesting pilot. He was a Battle of Britain pilot, flying fighters in the defence of Britain, and later he switched over to Bomber Command and flew Lancasters in number 617 Squadron. Now, 617 Squadron is well known as the Dam Busters. He wasn't on the Dam's raid itself, uh, but he flew with the squadron later on Special Ops. And one of those raids that he was on was the sinking of the Tirpitz. And with him on that raid was fellow 617 Squadron pilot Arthur Joplin. Now, Arthur was also present at this meeting. And in the speech you hear him refer to Arthur, because Arthur was sitting there among the other veterans uh, of the New Zealand Bomber Command Association. Tony is head of the uh, Bomber Command Association in Britain and is therefore very involved in the current project, which is the Bomber Command Memorial, which is going up in Hyde Park in London. So he's talking here to the Bomber Command veterans uh, and their families uh, at this little gathering at MOTAT and it was quite a, a, a dampbuster themed meeting with Tony and Arthur and also uh, the nephew of 617 Squadron pilot Bernard Gumbly who was killed on that Tirpitz raid and also the niece of Bruce Hosey uh, who was killed later in 617 Squadron, another New Zealander. Tony Iverson has also written a book called Lancaster the Biography, so you might like to seek that out as well. Uh, it should be noted with this recording that it was recorded in MOTAT on the day that it was opened and it was busy school holiday, so there is a little bit of background noise. I do apologise for that, but there was nothing we could do because it was an active and busy museum. With Tony Iverson and Arthur Joplin both present on the day, the New Zealand Bomber Command Association took the opportunity to have their replica of the Grand Slam bomb that they have been building for the museum, for MOTAT, uh, to be blessed. And Tony's little speech is part of that ceremony. Anyway, we'll get on to the recording, and here's Tony Iverson. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for inviting me to say a few words on this very special occasion. And I feel it's a great privilege for me as an Englishman to be asked here in New Zealand to dedicate or bless, or what the hell you do with a, a bomb. Kiss it. <laughs> particularly one as big as Grand Slam. And first I think we must congratulate those who have given their time and their energy and determination in building the replica, and I suppose it's somewhere about, which we'll see shortly, of what was the biggest bomb in the world in early 1945, when it was used exclusively by 617 Squadron, otherwise known as the Dambusters. Now, two of the wartime squadron are here, although neither of us had any link whatever with Grand Slam, which um, was either 22,000 pounds or 10,000 kilos. Now, I'm not sure. I think some of us are pound people and the younger ones are, are metric. 
It was designed by Barnes-Wallace. Now Barnes-Wallace was an exceptional engineer and, and inventor and he started life designing airships and then he went on to aeroplanes and then on to bouncing bombs. Uh, after that, big bombs like Tallboy and its elder brother of um, Grand Slam. And after the war, he designed the first swing-wing aircraft. He had a what a prolific mind, and uh, um, and and uh, how energetic this man was. Now, Tallboy, which was. 12,000 pounds, or 6,000 kilos, was used by 617 Squadron to sink the 56,000 ton German battleship Tirpitz, which was at the time the largest and most powerful warship in the world. And we did it in a place called Tromsø, Tromsø Fjord, northern Norway, just inside the Arctic Circle in November 1944. And there are only three pilots left in the world who flew on that attack, and two of us are here today, Arthur from Glendary and, and myself. Now, Grand Slam was a bigger version of Tallboy. It was considerably bigger in that it was 4,000 pounds, or 4,000 kilos more uh, heavier. But it, it wasn't so much bigger in size. Uh, Grand Slam was eight, uh, eight and a half meters long, and Tirpitz uh, Tallboy was seven, and Grand Slam had a one and a half meter diameter, Tallboy was one meter. But Grand Slam had a much thicker casing, and that was for a reason, because it was a penetrative bomb. Not to explode the moment it hit the ground, but to burrow deep into the earth without breaking up, before going off with such powerful effect, just like a small earthquake that all kinds of structures nearby just fell down. Barnes-Wallace described it as having perfect aerodynamic shape. And a feature was the four fins at the tail, which were set at an angle to keep it stable and accurate on the way down when it passed through the speed of sound, over 300 meters per second. Now the bomb obviously had to be used with a bomb site. And again, 617 Squadron had the stabilizing automatic bomb site, which in 1944 had a computer built into the system. The navigator and bomb aimer fed into that, com that, that computer the aircraft height, the aircraft speed, the wind speed and direction, uh, so that really the bomb site, once it had been set up, almost took over. And this was essential because uh, we, we used to bomb from about 15,000 feet and it's amazing how accurate that bomb site was. So combining the bomb site and Grand Slam gave the squadron something rather special. Now I don't know how many were produced. Uh, they were built in the UK at Sheffield, at the steel city there and later in the United States. Uh, 617, the only squadron, as I said, to use them, dropped 42 in nine operations in March and April 1945. 
And of course there was only one aeroplane which could carry this massive bomb and that was of course the Lancaster. But there had to be modifications. And if we start from the front, you see there is a, a gun turret with guns. That was taken out and a fairing put over the nose. And behind the pilot and navigator, the whole wireless operator's compartment was, was taken out. And then the mid-upper turret, which is sitting there with two guns on it, uh, disappeared, along with a heavy flare chute. And the bomb doors were taken off. And Grand Slam was slung externally beneath the fuselage. Oh, and finally the undercarriage was strengthened to take the extra weight. Now, all these reductions were necessary to control the overall weight of the lack. For with Grand Slammer hanging underneath, the total weight was, and we'll get pounds, 72,000, or about 35,000 kilos, over 32 tons. As a comparison, our Lancasters for Tirpitz just topped 68,000 pounds, which is about 30 tons. And these changes meant that the crew could be reduced to five instead of the usual seven. <coughs> so the first operation with Grand Slam was on the 14th of March, 1945, against the Bielefeld viaduct in central Germany. And this important structure, a vital link in the German na rail network, had been attacked many times by the RAF and the United States Air Force over several months, but all to no effect. The viaduct defeated them all. From high in the air, it looked like a long, dinky toy bridge, and a target photo showed it standing proud amidst an area pitted with flooded bomb craters, very like pictures of shell holes in no man's land in the first war. On that occasion, only one Grand Slam was dropped by Wing Commander Jock Calder, a Scotsman who I think um, Arthur knew as I do. And he dropped it from 16,000 feet or 5,000 meters. And although it didn't hit the viaduct, it fell very close, plunged deep into the ground, exploded, and did its job perfectly. The whole structure shuddered, folded up, and collapsed like a house of cards. End of the Bielefeld viaduct problem. Now the other 617 Grand Slam operations were against other viaducts and bridges and U-boat shelters in ports like Hamburg. And these U-boat pens, as they were called, were used to refit submarines between patrols and were, were covered with some 10 meters of reinforced concrete and sand and steel as a protection against bombing. The Grand Slam, with its delayed action, uh, three delayed action ex exploders in the tail, went through these layers like a knife through butter. And Grand Slam would have been incredibly useful earlier in the war in the Battle of the Atlantic. And one future use of that big bomb would have been, of course, against the, ground, the underground weapons and aircraft factories, which the Germans were building in the country to escape 
the bombing of the RAF from the United States. But the end of the European war in May 1945 stopped any more Grand Slam operations. Now you may be interested to know that 12 New Zealand aircrew served in 617 Squadron between its formation in March 1943 and the end of World War II. And three were involved in the famous Dams Raid. Four of the 12 were killed and 12 decorations were won. One pilot, Flight Lieutenant Bernard Gumbley, DFM, was shot down on one of the Grand Slam raids. Now some more figures about the role that New Zealand Air Force's involvement in the bomber offensive. 1,679 New Zealand aircrew were killed. 277 were wounded and 304 shot down and taken prisoner. A total of 2,260 casualties. Now I cannot find the total number of New Zealand air crew in, 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 in England who flew in our air bomber command, but I'll guess nearly 4,000. An incredible effort by your country and a significant factor in Bomber Command's contribution to final victory and the liberation of Europe. So on behalf of my country and of the Royal Air Force, it is my privilege to salute you and thank you for coming to help us in our fight to preserve our liberty. In conclusion, let me say a little, word, a little bit about the memorial Bomber Command Memorial now being built in London, in the centre of London. Those of whom, though many of you I think, know London. You know Piccadilly runs down to Hyde Park Corner and on that north side the RAF Club is situated. If you stood on the steps of the RAF Club and looked 45 degrees to your right, that, that is where the memorial will be, just as Piccadilly approaches Hyde Park Corner. Work is going on at the moment. A lot of work is going on off-site with the stones, Portland stone. And the site is being prepared, excavated, trees are being removed, and new trees and mature trees will be, will, more will be planted. Off-site, a famous sculptor called Philip Jackson is working on the final figure. This will be a group of the seven of a bomber crew just after returning from a wreck. And it's a very, very powerful, very powerful sculpture indeed. We know that dedication date will be June the 28th this year by Her Majesty the Queen. And we know also that, thanks to your committee, a number of you will be coming to London for the occasion. And I hope to see you there. I have a couple of photographs of, uh, of the, the model of the, of, of the uh, memorial, if anyone would like to look at them. But thank you for listening to me.